everyone and welcome to Saturday's special and we've got two fantastic guests for you today. Later in the show I'll be joined by Owen Coyle Jr who is manager of the England amputee team but first I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Vicky Wright who is the daughter of Wolves in England legend Billy Wright. Vicky welcome to the show. Thank you very much I'm very excited about talking about my dad as I always am. Well, me too. And uh, I can see you've got a picture of your dad next to you when, when he uh, made his 100th appearance for England. And it's fair to say your dad was a, a legend among legends. He was the Thank first you. player to make 100 appearances for his country. He made his Yeah, he made his debut for Wolves age 15, went on to be club captain, and he captained England 90 times. And he won the first division title with Wolves three times and the FA Cup. And uh, he was also manager of the England youth team and went on to become Arsenal's manager. And his signings for Arsenal included Bob Wilson and Frank McClintock. So, so Vicky, um, firstly, what do you remember of your dad as a player? Well, firstly, congratulations. You've done your homework there. Fantastic. All those bits of information, spot on. So my, my memories of him as a, as a dad, well, the, the, the legend that he was in, in the game um, and everything he achieved well, didn't even compare to, to what he achieved as a dad. He, I couldn't have asked for a better role model. Dad was a, a unique person, Mark. He was uh, just a one-off. You know, one of those people that walk on this earth that are just blessed and gifted. That He had everything, every value that dad had, and I try and sort of emulate that now. He was, he was good through and through. He never had a temper. I never saw him lose his temper. He was kind. He was generous. He had, he sort of carried this mantle of greatness uh, around with such um, sort of a humbleness and, and a modesty. You know, he was never too, too, too big to, to sign an autograph to anyone or talk to a, a guy that sort of pushed the trolleys and waitress. And then, you know, two days later, he'd be having lunch in Windsor Castle with the Queen. And, and you know, and he talked the same way to everybody. Um, but for me, as, as his daughter and my sister, and we just say he was just always there for us as well. He was never, even though he wasn't always there because he went to work in Central um, for 15, no, more than that, actually, 18 years, he, he worked at Central TV, head of sport up there. So he actually was away for, for five days of the week and he came on the weekends. But, you know, never remember not being there because when he was there, boy, he was full on. We used to play in the garden with him, cricket and rounders and, and football even. <laughs> I remember the frustration because he'd do all this clever stuff with his, with his feet and my sister couldn't get close to the ball. And mum used to say, darling, don't, don't let them get the ball occasionally. He said, no, they've got to learn. They've got to learn. But it was tough. Well, you, <laughs> but, you, um, so you're sitting next to, I can see a very famous picture of, of your dad being lifted on the shoulders of uh, two other players um, when he made his 100th appearance for England, the first player in football history to make history. appearances for his country. Um, what are the, the moments that you remember most about his playing career? Well, sadly, sadly, Mark, nothing really, because um, this, this match was played, this was his 100th cap, and it was played on April the 11th in um, 1959, and I was born on the 5th of April. 
So literally I was induced so that I could be on this planet and mum could get to see the game really, because also her paediatrician wanted to see the game. This was such a massive game in football. So I was hurried along and I arrived on the 5th of April. And the lovely story behind this picture is that um, I arrived on the 5th, as I said, mum's in hospital and, and she was still in hospital. And she told my dad that she didn't think she'd probably be able to make it. He said, darling, that's absolutely fine. There's no need, you stay, take your time. There's no rush, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll, there's enough people there. <laughs> he said, you don't have to come. Cause all the time she was planning to, to be there. And I've got another picture actually that's even, even uh, uh, makes this picture more special because when he walked down onto the pitch, and luckily, I've got the, the footage of it on, on the Pathé News clip. Um, he walks down to the pitch. There's over 100,000 people there screaming his name. It was such an event. And he walks out and he looks so shy and modest and wonderful. And he's holding the ball and he's, he's quite serious. And he just walks on as the leader of the team. And you see a, a photographer reporting, you know, one of those long Macs and a big, big old um, camera. And he runs over to Dad. And you can see him whispering something in his ear and, and he points to the crowd. And so dad looks up and of course you can see the three bevs in these little white fluffy hats all sitting there in a row with the gynecologist next to them waving to dad and his face changed and completely lights up. And he just does this fist like, you made it, you know. So it was a very special day and, and to think they won as well. And Bobby Charlton scored the, the goal, it was against Scotland. That was another big victory because they were such great rivals. And uh, to think he, he, you know, he went off the pitch and then packed his little bag and came home to me. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Aren't I lucky? And, and we've, we've been talking about this, this uh, picture that you've been sitting next to uh, now, this very famous picture. Obviously, on, if people are listening to the podcast and are thinking, oh, I'd, I'd like to see the picture, we will put something on, on social media so you, you can have a look. And, and you oh, mentioned, yeah. and you mentioned there, Vicky, your your mum was uh, very famous too, of course, Joy Beverly of the Beverly Sisters, and and as you said there, uh, they were in the crowd that that day. What was it like for you growing up with with two famous parents? Well, it's it's always tricky to answer that, and I I did get asked that more than any anything else really, and I, I always struggle with the answer because it it was just normal. Mark, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Because it was my normal and it was our normal, it wasn't like, oh God, it was unbelievable because it was just, I didn't know any different. You know, I I was I always feel so blessed because it was a loving, very loving um, family set up and we were just, we were happy and, and, and had everything. And, um, you know, as far as I'm being famous, I didn't really know quite how famous my dad was, really, until... He passed and the, the level of, of fame that he had was that we had probably 50 bin liners full in our living room of mail letters from all over the world. Some of them just said Billy Wright England that were from Russia and, and uh, uh, Rio and just with people saying we are so sorry we, he, was a, he was a hero, he was our hero. Uh, I met him, all these letters, we, it took us months and months to go through them all. And I thought, my goodness, wow. And then the tributes, and uh, and then I kind of realized that the extent of, of his fame, but as I say, he retired um, just after this. So when I was born, um, I sadly didn't get to see him play, but I have seen 
you know, bits and pieces that they've got matches, the hungry matches on uh, a funny old grainy black and white. Let me take this picture down now because it's yeah. tippling over. That's I'll okay. take the picture. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it down because it's fall over. So, yeah, so I've seen, I've, I've spoken because I've, I've done a presentation about his life, Mark. I've spoken to you about it, haven't I? Yeah. Um, and it, through lockdown, um, you know, it's it's been sort of on hold. And just before we all got crazy with the COVID, I um I spent two years. My my daughter was twenty five, and so that was that was Dad's first grandchild, who he was so excited about uh, the whole event. And he uh, he saw her when she was little, and I think she was eight months when he died. So sadly, but you know. He didn't get to see her and she's so like him she's blonde blue eyed you know she, she looks like him and mum so that's sad that he didn't get to see her but so for her 25th I thought well, I know what I'll do I'll do a sort of compilation of pictures of him at home um, him and everything he achieved so that she can um, have an idea of how great he was you know and it'll be there forever and I got some some footage of, of him playing and I sort of looked into it and made a few phone calls and I started to, to hear about how he got rejected from Wolves and then he was only 15. Then he got him into a bad tackle at 17 years old, broken ankle, was told he'd never play again, was then told there's a procedure that's not been done in the north of England before. It's a very new procedure where we put a metal pin through the bone and, and, and Dad's manager, uh, Frank Buckley, said, you know, there's no way... Um, Sonny, that you'll recover from this. For a footballer, this ankle injury is is never going to be is never going to be right. But Dad was such a fighter and such a spirit. He um, he 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 said, "Let's go ahead. If there's a chance, it might work." And and it did, obviously. And he worked even harder to get that that right uh, ankle stronger. And and the, he became then a two-footed player because the other foot was you know so much stronger. So there's all those little stories. I thought, oh, that's great. I'll write that down. And then, oh, that's great. I'll write that down. And and all. The, and I thought this story is is just too good to be true. This is it's like a real little lad from Ironbridge that had nothing. He used to get the water from a well that became like a global. Um, superstar really and a leader of his, his his Wolverhampton Wanderers his beloved Wolverhampton Wanderers who he never played for another team obviously that was his heart and soul um, and then Captain England uh, you know and he as I say he, he just sort of went oh, well, I was lucky or, you know, he didn't sort of realise and so I, I started to do this um, compilation I thought I'm going to do this now properly and I went to studios and I put a ton of my savings into getting interviews with everybody and in studio to, to get all the pictures um, sort of edited. And, and I narrate, narrate it. And it's a, the most incredible story because it's not only his football story, but it's that when he met my mum, who was really famous at the time, um, and she was working at the Palladium. If I'm waffling on too much, stop me, Mark. No, um, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Walter Winterbottom at the time um, when he was managing England used to take the lads to, to for a relaxing evening on the Friday night and they used to go to the Palladium in London and see whatever was on and so this particular night Danny Kaye was on at Palladium you know Danny Kaye very famous American star and mum and the twins were supporting Danny so and I spoke to lovely Ron Flowers who sadly passed now as well. But I spoke to him when I was doing my research and I'd love to chat with him. And he said, um, he said, I must tell you a funny story about that night. He said, because I sat next to, to Billy and Billy was the, the ultimate um, 
professionally. He was so dedicated. He he ate, slept and breathed football. There was nothing else in Billy's life. He he just was dedicated. No girls, no women, no booze, no smoking, no partying, nothing. Dad was just dedicated. But this night, he said, we all sat there and watched his life change. And he didn't meet her. He just saw her on the stage as she came on. He said, and he... He just, he met the love of his life. He saw her, fell in love, and his cheeks flushed, you know, his knees were shaking, he was trembling. He just, you know, so Ross Flatter, we all ribbed him like crazy, all the way back in the coach to the little digs, you know, so we were teasing him incessantly. And Bill was just smiling and shyly looking down at the floor. He said, but you know what, Dickie, he said, he got his own back. He married her six months later, <laughs> which is pretty good going. <laughs> and, it, and how they met was a lovely story too, which is yeah. maybe for another time, but that's a lovely story. So that's all in my um, presentation, which makes it you know, such a journey because then he goes yeah. into the showbiz world and then he, he becomes a director at, at Central and then and then they have the, the stand opening at Molyneux. They, you know, Shaq Haywood built this incredible ground and made Dad a director and made him a stand. Yeah. And the opening of that was was sensational for Dad. So it really is a, a brilliant story. And, and this collection you've put together, it's it's called the Billy Wright story. So is that now finished? And if it is, where, where can people find that? Or you know, yeah, it's no, it's, it's not finished at all because literally I, I did it on September the the fifth, I think, and uh, two years ago at Molyneux, and that was a, a sensational night where I. I was so nervous because I, you know, I'd, I'd done singing. I'd been in a band called The Foxes with my sister and cousins. And so I was used to, to being on stage, but never on my own talking. And I had to stand there and, and do it. And I never thought anybody would come really, because I thought they was gonna buy a ticket to see me. But of course they didn't come to see me. They came to see my dad's story. And I, and I did it and I, it was one of the best nights of my life, but Having said that, two weeks later, practically, we, we were told about this terrible virus that was coming and it was all going to kick off. And, and I'd been invited to do the same story um, over in Mexico, in Spain, um, one in London. And I've got all these, these evenings ready to, to, to tell the story to Wolf's fans predominantly. And we were told, that's it, we've all got to lock away. And, and everything went, as we know, into, into darkness. And so it's been on hold. But um, fingers crossed, Mark, um, I'm ready to relaunch it. Great. Well, I wish, so, I wish, you, I wish you luck with that. And, and obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it's great for you, although you didn't actually see your, your dad play um, football, you, you've got that footage that, that you can see. Um, what, is there anything that you do remember from, from his football career? Because obviously he did go on to manage Arsenal as well. So... What are your kind of earliest memories of, of him in football? Well, it's funny, isn't it? I haven't really, not in football. Um, I remember he, football was always in the house. We'd, it was, match of the day was was absolutely in all those matches. On a Sunday, we'd be sitting there and it would come on me thing, here we go. And, and there was always football in the household. Um, as I say, yeah, Dad managed Arsenal, didn't he? That didn't last well I didn't do too well in that he he was it was a difficult time for him and, and again in the story it's not all up there are downs when he got sacked from Arsenal it was very tough for dad having said that he did he did buy as you say he signed Frank McClintock, Bob Wilson um all those what George Graham wonderful players that went on to to win the double so it, it's just he was a bit too a bit too nice when I've spoken to people they say I think he was a bit too nice 
So, but my brother, or um, who is, was wasn't dad's son, but but mum's son from a previous marriage, my my lovely brother Vint, he was a big Arsenal fan. So my memory really was going to to Arsenal every week with Vincent and um, and, and watching them play. Uh, but as far as dad playing, no, it's it's just been on on the screen that I saw it and in the garden. <laughs> uh, what do you, Vicky, for for you as? Um... Billy's daughter and of course he, he was awarded the CBE as well so you know yet another accolade and an honour for, for him mm -hmm. and also for, for you as a family what what do you feel personally is your dad's legacy? His legacy well that's a very good question isn't it his legacy well one of the wonderful lines that I actually Bill Slater said in a quote uh, that I've, I've got at the I ended the um, the talk the presentation with quotes from from all the greats that have said their things about Dan and, and I think Bill Slater's one was, was the one that touched me I think more than any of them and he just said Billy was a great ambassador to football but for more than that he was an ambassador to the human race and I just thought wow that 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 sums dad up he was he was a leader but he didn't lead um, in, in a bullish kind of way he led by example he was everyone's friend he had time for everybody um so his legacy really was that he's still so loved and i go to wolverhampton now and he he is he's royalty there i'm royalty there just because i'm his daughter and the statue stands nine foot tall outside one and you have you seen that mark i haven't seen it in in person but yeah I've, I've oh, you, you must try to see it it's it's sensational, and you look at it, and and the people all still the the the, the older guys, the, the younger sons, and then the little ones come, and you can see the sons and the granddads all together, and they lift their little ones up and they touch dad's boot for luck, and that's a legacy that wow. When you can you imagine leaving that behind, and makes me upset, but you know, wouldn't he be proud to think? Wouldn't he be proud to think that he's left that? And also his mum, who died when dad was thirteen. So he didn't have his mum for long. And she was an incredible Wolverhampton Wanderer supporter. And she knew her little lad kicked the ball around a bit in the, in the outside the front door. But if, if I could bring her back and blindfold her and just stand her on the, on the other side of Waterloo Road there and then take that um, blindfold off and say, look what your little lad did. <laughs> Wouldn't she be proud? Wouldn't she be proud? As I am. And I, every time I go by it, Mark, you know, I get goosebumps on my arm. And so it does look a lot like him. It's a bit, the most wonderful statue. And I'm, I am biased, but it is incredible. Try and see it if you're ever up that way. I, I will do. And, and Vicky, I, I want to wish you, uh, firstly, best of luck with the Billy Wright story and, um, and, and to thank you so much for coming on. It's been fantastic to speak to you. Um, you know, no, great, it's been my pleasure. Well, we'll keep in touch, Mark. And, and when I when I get the next next venue, you can maybe tell everybody. But if they want to go on to the Billy Wright story, I think it's the billywrightstory.com. You can you can look up um, all about his life and pictures, and I'll I can keep everyone posted as to when I'm doing the next one. So fingers crossed, then. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Vicky. You're welcome. Bye, everyone. A warm welcome now to Owen Coyle Jr, who is the manager of the England amputee team. Welcome Owen, it's great to have you with us and perhaps you can start by telling us how you got involved in the England amputee FA. 
Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me on, Mark, and, and delighted to be here with regards to my role when I first came involved. I was actually um, a young man. I just left school, uh, got myself an apprenticeship at Lancashire Football Association. And from there, uh, a gentleman called Pete Wilde, who might be a familiar name with those involved in football, is the current Halifax Town head coach. Uh, Pete was the head coach of the England amputee team at that time. Um, he asked me to come involved, see what it was all around. And really from there, um, I got more involved over the years. And at 19 years old, I had the opportunity to, to take the team on, which um, as a Scotsman was quite a unique opportunity, um, but certainly one that I was very privileged to have um, and, and lead, obviously, the team out. And I've been in the role for the past six years. Um, fortunately, experienced a, a European Championship in 2017, which were runners-up in, um, a World Cup, and then another European Championship just last year. So, um, yeah, some fantastic experience. Experiences, quite a unique experience as well within um, an elite performance disability. Um, and what is your main aim as a as the head coach? Because if you if you sort of think about uh, a manager of a, of a club team in you know Scotland or England um, at, at any level, really, it's ultimately about results. But I guess your your aims are much broader than than that in terms of inclusion and, and that sort of thing. Is that right? At a national team level, it's very similar. It's all about results um, on a wider charitable picture in terms of development of the wider programmes and awareness of the sport is probably where it does differ. Um, and certainly at national team level, there's still a big awareness uh, pull on what we're trying to do. But we have 25 members of staff that vary from the technical team where we'll get UEFA licensed coaches and analysts to performance psychology, medical, we'll get doctors and chartered physiotherapists, to a media team and operations team. So we'll get quite a large, um, I suppose, operation Yourself, which we've got a lot of fantastic qualified and skilled members of staff in that ultimately are all vying for three points within a group stage match or um, then try to remain in the tournament at an knockout stage. So it's certainly um, competitive and it's certainly around uh, winning games um, at that level. Uh, but of course, there is there's more of a, I suppose, an undercurrent on, on other levels around awareness, recruitment, um, and actually driving not only amputee football, but, but disability sport as a whole. And do you know what the statistics are around amputees in, in the UK and around the world? Um, I would be interested, but I'd assume there would be a lot of older amputees based on, um, again, different uh, medical conditions around diabetes, etc. Yeah, and, and I know that you're, um, you're currently preparing for the Amputee World Cup, and you, you mentioned the World Cup and the, you know, the, the Euros equivalent as well. Um, which nations are involved in, in the World Cup? And it's taking place this, this year, I know. Um, so when, when is it taking place and where and, and which are the nations that, that are taking part? So the tournament's taking place in Istanbul and Turkey. Uh, so Turkey are the leaders of the sport, if I'm being honest, honest with you, across the globe in terms of how they promote the game, the amount of players that they've got playing the game and, and just how they, they really build it and support it. I suppose a, a little bit of evidence of that is in 2017 when we got to the European Championship final, uh, there's 42,000 at the Besiktas Stadium, Vodafone Arena, uh, which was a phenomenal experience to be a part of. So they don't take the sport lightly. They get behind the sport like any big European night, the national anthem when we went there was booed. Every time we had the ball, we were booed and whistled. Uh, they celebrated the goals that they scored in the game, like the Galatasaray, Besiktas, Fenerbahce, like, like they were playing. So um, whilst we fell short, conceding the last minute to lose the game 2-1, that, that experience was phenomenal. And hopefully is a, is a little bit of a picture of where we eventually want the sport to 
to go uh, long term. I'm sure it's got the opportunity to do that. Uh, but Turkey are, are the leaders on that front. Poland, Russia, certainly within Europe, um, are very, very strong at what they do. Spain got to the European final just gone as well, so a really strong nation. And then across the globe, you've got Japan, um, that very good from Asia. You've got a lot of the African countries based off their mobility um, and physicality. Uh, so the likes of Angola, who are the current world champions. Ghana, who have just won the previous African Cup of Nations, um, Kenya, Nigeria, very strong. And then obviously you've got your traditional South American countries that are, um, again, parallel within the mainstream game. Argentina and Brazil are very, very good as well. So Mexico, USA, not too bad from Central America um, and Haiti as well. So um, it's quite quite unique in terms of the, the countries that are playing, but it's forever growing. More countries are getting involved in uh, the level of the programmes do differ from country to country, uh, but the, the strength is certainly there for the sport to grow and push towards the Paralympics, which we're currently not involved in. Um, where do England rank in the world? You mentioned uh, you got to a, a final not so long ago, but where, where's your kind of world ranking at the moment? So at the moment we're fifth. Um, in the world, which is something that uh, whilst we feel that we're actually better than that ranking um, from a, um, I suppose, a, a logistics and operations standpoint, it's something we're very proud of because what is quite unique as well is we're coming up against a lot of countries who are professional and are supported and, and really helped with the programme where our programme that we've got in place is all around professional standards um, and that's what the expectation is from our players um, but our, our players and staff aren't paid within their roles um, so whilst I spoke to you about the highly skilled individuals that we've got um, from a staffing standpoint it's all done on a voluntary basis which is quite a unique set of circumstances so certainly punching above our weight um, on, on all fronts but we feel we can punch even higher going into the World Cup later this year. And in, in terms of uh, what, what qualifies um, for somebody to take part is, is it all... Um, you know, is it you kind of if you're thinking about amputee football, you'd obviously think about you know the the legs and and that sort of thing. But is it kind of any um, any limb, you know, hand, arm, that sort of thing? Yeah, very much so. So with uh, lower limb amputees, they play on crutches with the one dominant leg. Um, so again, an amputee can be amputated or have a limb deficiency at various parts of the body. Um, so if you're a lower limb amputee, uh, then you play on your one dominant leg and your residual limb um, isn't allowed to touch the ball. It's classed as, a, as almost a handball. Um, and also with the crutches, the crutches aren't allowed to make contact with the ball. If it's accidental, very similar to the handball rule within mainstream football, it's then it's then allowed to pass. But if there's any uh, recognition of it being intentional, it can be a free kick, penalty kick, for example. And then upper body amputees are those with an upper body limb deficiency. It plays goalkeepers. So again, they they can't come out of their area because they have two working legs um, and, and they, they utilise as goalkeepers obviously within a national team setting and within the laws of the game that's how that looks on a, an elite performance level uh, within the grassroots side of the game here in England uh, we allow people to come and play in different ways with a prosthetic limbs on for example and uh, for upper body amputees to play outfield and again we just put certain restrictions around that to make it closer for everybody to play the sport and very fortunate we've got eight professional football clubs that are linked into our national amputee league from Man City, Arsenal, Everton, Newcastle United so we've got a host of clubs that are involved on in that front too, which is, uh, yeah, it's a very exciting opportunity for anybody to become involved in the sport. But then obviously to progress at a national level, you need to kind of fill into one of those criteria to qualify. Uh, and how are the preparations going for the, for the World Cup for your team? 
done really well. We just had the first training weekend back, uh, just gone last weekend. So we train at Reese's College in that, which which is a, a beautiful setting. And we've got our own training facility there, which again, um, from a, a professional standpoint, is branded up. It looks apart, it feels apart from the players arriving and the staff. Um, so we had the first weekend gone there. We train usually one weekend a month. The players obviously have their club commitments as well, where they're playing within the league domestically. Uh, so we uh, yeah we train once a month, sometimes twice a month, depending on the calendar and how that looks. And we do usually train Friday through to Sunday. Uh, but yeah, we've got a lot of training weekends. We'll get Ghana coming over to play us in March, um, and then we go to the the tournament in, in Warsaw, uh, which is a kind of a bit of a World Cup preparation tournament, which will be six other teams present, and uh, which will be a great opportunity to see where we're at and a, and a real test. Um, and then June Turkey coming across to play us again, some behind closed doors international fixtures. And then we move into the, the September period where we're going to go to Madrid for another uh, pre-World Cup tournament before going to Istanbul on the 1st of October. So lots of competitions, fixtures, opportunities to gain experience. We'll be quite a young squad this year, mixed with a little bit of experience too. Uh, so the squad's going through a little bit of a transition positively. Uh, so it'll be good to, to give them an opportunity to test themselves and, and see where they're at and, and give us a better indication of moving into October, how, how far we can actually go within the tournament. Uh, and you mentioned the Paralympics earlier, and I, and I think if I understood correctly, in England are not involved at the moment. Is that on the agenda? Yeah, definitely. So the, the sport as a whole, amputee football isn't involved in the Paralympics. A uh, number of reasons for that. It's all around kind of global scale on amount of players, teams, competing policies, procedures, having your medical boards, etc. in place for all of that. And that's something that's to sit on the World Amputee Football Federation Committee. Uh, so it's something that we're moving towards and try to progress the sport as a whole to eventually move uh, to that point. And I think it's fair to say with my involvement, I probably won't see it in the Paralympics because it's usually a 10-year process and um, I'll be doing different things, I'm sure, by that point within, within different roles, hopefully within football still. Um, but yeah, we're, we're working towards it and it's something on a global level that we're trying to all do a little bit within each individual country to get it to that stage. It's not a million miles off kind of going for, for the opening application now. Um, and then once that application's in, as I said, it's usually anywhere between a five and 10-year period to eventually get selected to be a Paralympic sport, uh, which you can only have so many team football sports and you've got um, blind football that's currently in the Paralympics. So within that disability sector, there's a number of sports that are competing against each other for that opportunity. So, yeah, not as straightforward as just jumping in there, but certainly something that we're working towards on a, on a global level. And you're Owen Cord Jr., son of um, Owen Cord Sr., of course, um, who was a striker for Bolton, several clubs in Scotland. And I, I didn't realise this. Uh, I, I kind of guessed or, or assumed, I think, that he, he was involved in, in Scotland. And I think he was at youth level at some point, but he actually went on to represent Republic of Ireland, I know. Um, and, and he also managed several clubs, so Burnley, Bolton, Wigan, Blackburn, several other clubs. And I think I'm right in saying he's currently managing a club in the Indian Super League. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's all correct. Um, and, and how much influence has, has your dad had on you as, as a manager and a coach? Massively, massively. Me and my dad are very, very close. Um, and ultimately, he's someone that, that I look up to as a role model with what he's achieved in the game. Um, and any football fan, particularly fans of those clubs that you've just rhymed off, will have, uh, like anything, a difference on opinion on how good, bad or indifferent he has been as a manager. Um, but certainly from, from my side, being his son, uh, you see all the kind of trials and tribulations that, that he's gone through over the years. Um, and he's had some successful 
at times whilst having some times that have been challenging um, and I think that's like the coach in, in any level you, you go through those periods don't you and there's very few likes of Pep who have those moments at the top for so long um, and, and that's why they are so special those managers that are working at the top for that long period of time but yeah he's influenced me massively I think probably as a person first and foremost over anything to do with the coaching side of life and um, me and him in terms of coaching, leadership, management, um, there's a lot of similarities in, in what we do and how we do it. And um, equally, there's probably a few differences along the way as well. And that's just, I suppose, generational um, experience as well and, and who you're working with and, and how that looks. And it's not to say either or wrong or right, um, but certainly it's great to have conversation with them on differences that we both have and, and difference of opinion on things as well, because it's certainly healthy debates, um, which gets you thinking and gets you moving eventually in the right direction from my point of view. But no, He's doing tremendously well over in India at the moment. The team sits second in the league with games in hand to go top of the league if they were to win them. Um, and, and he's done fantastic since being over there. So he's, he's enjoying his football again, which, which I'm delighted for him um, to be doing that. But equally, obviously, missing him being away from home. So I'm forward to having him back after, after March time. Um, and you're obviously operating at the elite level in amputee football. But uh, let's say, you know, anyone who is thinking of getting involved. So, you know, back when, when I was playing Sunday league football with, with my friends, you can just start a, a team, but it's obviously not, not as straightforward, I guess. If anyone wants to, to get involved at, you know, uh, the entry level, if, if you like, if you want to call it that, what, what can they do? Are, are there, you know, clubs that, that they can contact? Is there an organisation they can contact? Yeah, so the England Amity Football Association, which the national team falls under the banner of, runs a range of different programmes. So to break it down in three simple terms, you've got three pillars of delivery, if you will. Uh, the first being the England programme that, that I oversee and head coach of. The second being our league programme, which is the grassroots provision for players to step into. And within that league programme, there's two different divisions. Uh, there's the Premiership and the Championship. The Championships are in those inclusive rules I spoke about earlier. And the Premiership is more geared towards, again, high performance and, and trying to win and, and buying for three points on each game day and then the other elements are junior programme for, for young players coming involved in the programme um, from the ages of four all the way through to through, through to 18 years old so that pathway is there for players that eventually want to start young and progress through um, and equally for somebody that loses a limb maybe later on in their life they can come into that entry level as you call it within the domestic league and then build towards uh, if somebody does want to go and get involved they can reach out to the England Football Association on the website there's a contact me page like everywhere and um, they can reach out and get involved on that front and we can then steer them in the right direction of where they should go to play and um, equally if you, if you do a little bit of research online there's always opportunities to go and contact your local club which we've got eight all across the country uh, the eight clubs are if I can ring them off off the top of my head you've got Newcastle United Everton Manchester City West Bromwich Albion Arsenal Peterborough United, Brighton and Hove Albion and Portsmouth. So there are eight clubs that are all linked to professional football teams and we're currently working as a charity again at the moment to, to get other regions. So if you look at Nottingham, um, certainly if you look at Bristol um, and, and they aren't the only two, there's a lot of untapped areas that we're not um, got teams and, and, and things in place for yet and we're trying to work towards that. So always open-minded working with clubs, teams and individuals that want to grow, grow the sport across the country. So my final question, Owen, is, uh, and Gareth Southgate gets this a lot, I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, what are the chances of, of England actually going on to, to win this next World Cup, do you think? 
I think for, for our team where we're going through a transition, it's certainly not impossible and it's certainly not out of reach. I think we've got a, a very young team that are very exciting and dynamic um, that need a lot of work over the next 10 months and experiences more importantly over the next 10 months if they were to go on and do that. I think for the first time and since I've been involved, it's a team that that really need to go and punch above their weight. Um, and, and, and that's quite exciting for me um, and to have a little bit of background without boring you on it. The, the last two or three campaigns, the squad we've had has been very, very strong and we've lost four or five of those influential players over this off-season um, due to personal circumstances, due to a change in the programme and a change in the direction which which I've decided to to lead the team into. Um, so I think for us to go and win it, we need to go and um, perform and overperform. Um, but that's that's achievable, that's something that can be done and based on the togetherness and the, the, the work rate and, and all the cliche phrases you expect within the game of football but if all those things were to come together and everything was to, to fall in line and ultimately have a little bit of luck along the way too, uh, there's no reason why we can't go and be successful without a doubt at the World Cup um, and, and England have won it three times in the past in the 80s um, so it'd be nice over a long time since we've, since we've done that to go and get our hands on a major tournament and it'd be nice to, to play a small part in that. And and, I, and you might be reluctant to answer to this question, but um, uh, just for my own curiosity, have, have you got any kind of star names that, you know, the top goal scorers, that, that sort of thing that, that might do well for England at the World Cup? Yeah, we've got, we've got some tremendous talents. Uh, the young players, we've got Jamie Tregascus, who's a young lad um, that, that lost his limb um, through cancer. He was actually playing at Manchester City's academy up until 13 years old and lost his leg playing football through an injury um, that he received. So Jamie's a very, very talented young man that's um, going to, I'm sure, set the world alight when he gets there in October. Um, and then we've got other upcoming players, Sean Jackson, who's a young centre-half that's willing and eager to learn and wants to get better and there's all the attributes as a again a human being as a young man to to go and do really really well so we've got we've got players that are well grounded that we've got players that are coachable that want to get better that want to improve and um, whilst the experience of Martin Hill, Tony Mills, Dave Tweed that have been about the sport for 10 plus years and played in all the major tournaments and, and have those experience to almost protect, support and educate those young players on as well. So that balance is, is really, really nice that we've got at the moment. And from that first camp that we've just seen there, it probably surprised a few people, including the players, of, of where we're actually starting off in a really positive place. And we'll still get 10 months worth of luck to get us to where we need to be. So certainly exciting and uh, yeah there'll be a few star names that hopefully might even take a few headlines along the way which would be nice well Owen uh, fantastic to um, uh, have you on as a, as a guest thanks so much for joining us uh, and, and wish you well for your preparations for the World Cup no it's an absolute pleasure thanks a lot for having me on Mark